I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. What's up, yo? This is Z-Trip, and you're checking out Rebel Radio. <laughs> hey, fuck you, Josh. <laughs> What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh, Rebel Radio is going down. What do you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio. This week we're coming at you live and direct from LA Times Festival of Books News Story. It's a live episode in front of an audience up on stage. We recorded this a couple months ago, and I'm excited to bring it to you today. Uh, my guest on stage with me was the one and only DJ Z Trip. He's one of my favorite DJs. He's a guy I've been trying to have on the show since day one. And I'm so excited that we were able to make it happen. Uh, if you don't know Z-Trip, he is considered the godfather of mashups. He's LL Cool J's touring DJ. He's also uh, co-hosts with LL uh, Rock the Bells Radio on Sirius XM. He's also playing festivals around the world. He's also making beats and remixes and albums and all that stuff. We get into all that about Z-Trip's uh, amazing history, his journey um, kind of exploding with, with uh, one of his mixtapes that really introduced the concept of mashups uh, back right around 2000. And, you know, he talks about work ethic. He talks about lessons learned. It's good stuff coming up on Rebel Radio right after the EDM.com track of the week. Too much in this mission. I cannot weaken for even a week and no, I cannot trust in just risk. That's why I keep all this distance. That's why I keep all this. That's why I keep all this distance. That's why I keep all this distance. 
Coming up fast I pray that it lasts Yo, that was Movers with Distance, the EDM.com track of the week. If you like that one, get over to EDM.com, check out more new music, and let's get into the interview with Z-Trip. Hello, hello. What's up? Awesome. What's up, guys? Thanks for joining us for Rebel Radio live at the LA Times Festival of Books. I think, uh, appreciate you making time on your Sunday. I know there's a lot to do. You guys could be in the desert at Coachella sweating it out, and you're here in a comfortable, beautiful theater with us, so I appreciate that. Um, I know we have people kind of straggling in. It seems like there was a, a mix-up with the tickets a little bit, so we'll have people joining us throughout the show. If, you're, if this is your first time checking out Rebel Radio, uh, it's a weekly podcast that I host talking to the rebels that are shaping youth culture, our, our culture today, and uh, my guest here could not be a more perfect fit for that. We're going to talk about you and all the amazing stuff that, uh, that you've brought us. Um, the show is coming up on four years, and you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you find podcasts, YouTube. We are live streaming uh, this show on YouTube, so anybody watching us on YouTube, if you're driving, please pull over. Uh, we don't want any casualties of the show. Uh, big, big shout out, thanks to the LA Times, to Clint, Pamela, everybody that puts on News Story. Uh, we were here last year interviewing uh, Ali Shaheed Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest. We had a great time, and, and uh, it's an honor to be invited back. I usually don't get invited back places, so I appreciate that. Um, so we are here with DJ Z Trip. Thank you for doing this, man. I appreciate you. I'm stoked to be here. Um, so we've known each other for a long time. Um, I want to talk about uh, your amazing journey as a DJ, entrepreneur, producer, all of that. Um, so we could, we could spend a whole hour just giving your resume, but I, I'm going to give some highlights. Um, um, so Z Trip is known as, as the godfather of mashups, which I think is an interesting title that we'll kind of dig into. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't put that one on myself. That was kind of... No, no, I, I understand. <laughs> one day, <laughs> it just happened. Totally. Um, but you're also rocking festivals all over the world, uh, apparently uh, for the delight of our, our Clint Schaff in uh, multiple states around the country. I know you're the touring DJ for LL Cool J for many, many years, and uh, you're also um, do the, the Rock the Bells radio with him on Sirius XM yeah. 43. Correct. Um, and, you know, you've opened for uh, everybody on the planet, including the Rolling Stones, including Linkin Park. I got to spend some time with you watching that show at the Hollywood Bowl that you opened. Um, and then producing for so many, many people, pro producing and remixing for Bob Marley, the Beastie Boys, Daft Punk, Nirvana, Public Enemy, plus movies, plus uh, who knows what else. I'm sure lots of other great stuff. Um, you played, uh, so we met, I think it was 1996, over the phone. And I forget who introduced us, but somebody told me about this guy from Arizona. And, um, and I had heard the, uh, the Tom Sawyer remix that you did. 
we spent some time talking, you know, you shared beats with me and we started kind of getting to know each other back then. And then, um, and then I had the pleasure of booking you, I'm sure probably more than once with some herb parties. But I remember when, it, when we were doing the marketing for Scion cars for Toyota, we had uh, this crazy launch party in New York and, and brought you out to play for a bunch of Japanese businessmen. I, I remember that party actually. Yeah, yeah. That was you know it's funny because if you think about back in the day, all those parties like early herb parties, cyan parties, like some of those things were all just we all started out at a certain time and everybody got fell into different businesses and we were all trying to still connect the dots. So it's like if you got a thing, you I knew we would probably get the call. Or if we got a thing, and we need somebody to write about it. We're like let's yeah. call you and call Raymond, call Herb. Like it's, yeah. so everyone was trying to sort of connect the dots. So those were the the early frameworks, I think, of people getting day jobs but still keeping a toe in the culture. So is that still a thing? I mean, I think you're you're hundred percent right that, you know, for guys like us when we started in, in this business, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't think of it as a business. I didn't realize that it was a business until much later. And it was just more about this community and this sort of uh, you know, brotherhood of people that you shared values with yeah i think i mean for me it's um you know we all sort of came up again at the same time so you know it didn't really feel like it was work ever when i was work you know when if you were like hey i got this job thing it was always like oh i'm just gonna go and do your event or your thing but it right it, I, I knew that it was gonna be dope i knew that it was gonna be you know of the culture and it wouldn't be like i'd walk into a room full of people that i'm like what you know, right. they, yeah. I thought we were going to go here. They all want this. Now it's awkward and weird. And <clears throat> some of the, the businesses, you could tell, like some of the businesses around the time that you're doing these parties, you know, if it was something for you, I was like, I know exactly what I'm walking into, but I would walk into some of these other parties and, and they'd book me on the strength of a Coachella performance or they saw me do something and they're like, now do it for these people. And right. you're just like, this is, it's, okay, I'll try, but like... <laughs> It's right. in branding, marketing, everywhere. Um, you almost—it's almost kind of hard to find a pure that um, without having some corporate entity sort of. You know. yeah, I mean, I think you know on both sides, the companies have wised up that culture is important, and then they need to be uh, investing in that. And then, you know, uh, when we did that that Cyan event, so it was the night they had just announced that they were launching a new car brand that morning. And then we had this party, right? And so I don't know if you remember this, but we had to call and book. You know, we had Shepard Ferry design the invites, and we had, you know, some some of our great DJ friends playing. And we had to kind of we we weren't allowed to tell anybody what it was for. So we were just like, it's this new car thing, and you got to trust me that it's not going to be terrible. <laughs> right. And right. Uh, but that doesn't happen anymore like that that uh, hesitation to work with corporate partners doesn't No, I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's, it's just about choosing the right entity you want to align with, you know? Yeah. Because again, so many of these people who were there in the trenches with us and the parties that were the raves or the things that were, you know, the illegal parties or whatever are now the heads of some of these companies. So it's like, it kind of right. makes sense. Okay, but I want to talk about you. What year was that when you had Beck come out? It's funny because I've I played Coachella um, four times I think or something yeah. like that so I forget which years they were but they, it all, the experience it all just sort of bleeds together but that was um, 
Yeah, that was one where <laughs> it was crazy because uh, I think Beck had played the day before or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, That's right. And um, and I was playing the next day, and we were on a golf cart going to the stage, and Paul Tillette, uh, who's one of the Golden Voice, uh, heads of Golden Voice, um, was like, man, Beck has been hitting me up all day wanting to get on another stage and do a freestyle thing. He's like, I'm wow. trying to figure out where to put him. I'm like, put him on my stage. And he's like, what? I was like, yeah, we'll just collaborate on something. And I was just, you know, I didn't think it was going to happen, but sure. he's like, all right, cool, let's see what happens. Literally get to the back of the stage, and all of a sudden, Beck's there. And I was like, oh, hey, man, what's going on? And uh, I had to get up to go on stage to perform. And I was like, so what do you want to do? Like, maybe, and I just threw this out. There's like, how about we do two turntables and a microphone? It kind of makes sense where it's at. Right. He's like, yeah, cool. I'm like, all right, so I'm thinking we'll go like, uh, Who's it? It's you and Justin, who's uh, was playing bass um, for him. It was those two, and and they were just gonna pop up at the end of my set. And I was like, okay, we'll go like a verse, chorus, verse, double chorus out, right? And he's like, yeah, cool. I'm like, great. All right, later, man. And I just jumped up on stage, and I was like, this is gonna totally suck or totally be amazing. I'm so happy to have HoneyBook as a sponsor on Rebel Radio because I know a lot of you, just like me, have your own businesses. Um, You started something around your creativity and and that's what you love doing. But you know, running a business, you have to do it all, right? You got to handle the contracts, the payments, the proposals, all the stuff that's not really what you care about, but it has to get done, right? Because you got to get that money. So HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you organize all those communications in one place. Uh, It integrates with your existing software like QuickBooks, Google Suite, MailChimp, whatever you use. And it it just makes it simple to run your business better. They give you templates, signatures, automation to keep everything on track, let you focus on the work that you really love to do. Save time, do more of what you love with HoneyBook. Right now, HoneyBook is offering Rebel Radio listeners 50% off your first year with the promo code REBEL. Payment's flexible and the promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to HoneyBook.com, use the promo code REBEL for 50% off your first year. Don't be stupid, do it now. That's HoneyBook.com, promo code REBEL. Well, it was amazing. Yeah, it ended up being great. He came out. We just did it and um, freestyled the whole thing. And it became, you know, a, a, one of those highlights that they, you know, wrote about. And it was great. I mean, it was just a fun time. Well, I think, you know, I brought it up because it was, it was, you know, it's a set that I still remember, you know, this many years later. And it was one of those things when um, uh, now that's what Coachella is, right? It's a bunch of surprise sets. I mean, it's it's well, way more rehearsed than that, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, you know, but there's a, but they've kind of baked that in. But when you were doing that, like, that was this new thing. You know, that yeah. was this kind of spontaneous new idea. I'm always up for that, though. That I think my whole legacy speaks to that. Um, I love taking two different things and putting them together that aren't necessarily supposed to work and figuring out the common thread between them. And that, to me is very much sort of uh, the whole approach of of just trying to be, you know, be authentic to what I'm about and what I'm into musically, um, drawing from different genres that I grew up listening to, really being a fan of, of 
hip hop, really being a fan of heavy metal, really being a fan of jazz and funk and like, and figuring out ways to incorporate drum and bass, whatever it is. And those shows to me, like those early days, having the ability to freestyle is such a important part of the show to me. So if you, you know, if I've got sort of my set planned out or mapped out a little bit and all of a sudden you throw me this Beck curveball, like that's exactly what I'm looking for because to me, that's also what makes you a better artist is being sort of pressed into this situation where you have to sink or swim and doing it, you know, doing a, a balancing on the high wire without a net is way more fulfilling. You know what I mean? If you know there's a net there, you're not, it's just not as cool. Sure. You know what I mean? So yeah. to know that you've got to really nail it um, forces you to come up with stuff. And I think there's, you know, when the crowd also sees that too, it's kind of like, I've always used this analogy where you're surfing and the person goes into the wave and you can't see them. And there's that moment of like, are they going to make it? And they don't, uh, and then they come out and they're like, yeah, they made it. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the same thing. Like I want to be able to have that moment of like, oh, I don't know. It's not gelling. Now they're gelling. Oh, and then it's like, that's, oh my God, I just saw the most amazing thing that I didn't, it was total by surprise. And it's a surprise for me and right. for them. And that to me is, um, I grew up watching uh, artists do that. So I like to, any chance I can, I try and throw a curveball in. So let's talk, you mentioned music that you, you're a fan of. So um, take us back to the beginning. Do you remember the first record you ever bought? First record I bought was The Story of Star Wars. And oh, wow. it was the narration of Star Wars. So not the John Williams. No, no, not the music. It was the narration. Oh my god. Um and uh and I listened to that record over and over because Star Wars was such a big deal for me as a kid. Yeah. Um I saw that when I was 7, right? Right when it came out, super sure. excited. Um and so getting that record and hearing this I was able to sort of watch the movie again with all the actors' voices and stuff mm-hmm. and it was incredible. But it's funny because that record is such a staple in my diet that as I started getting into music and buying records and just getting, you know, I started out as a drummer and wasn't really collecting records to be a DJ or anything. I just loved music. But once I got turntables and everything set up, I started messing with different styles of music. I would take anything that had a big, long drum break or instrumental, uh, a James Brown instrumental or whatever, and I would put that Star Wars record over top of it uh, and try great. and scratch the noises because I knew that record verbatim it was sure. like my go-to scratch record so trying to put that over different things and finding out what works what didn't work and it was like so it's kind of really weird that my first record was not even a, a music piece it was like the tools i mean that's kind of fitting yeah it's pretty much so i mean you know scratching who, R2 who introduced D2. you to djing um well it's really i'd have to say that I absorbed it. So I, originally I'm from New York. Before I moved to Arizona, I was in New York. And I was listening to, um, so hang on. I was in New York, moved out to Arizona. My f- family was out there, got a divorce. My uh, parents got a divorce. My dad moved back to New York. And so my mom was in Arizona and my dad was in New York. So I was doing this back and forth thing. So I would go to New York and I would listen to these mix shows on the radio late at night. And it was Marley Mall and Red Alert and right. uh, Chuck Chill Out and all these uh, New York DJs mixing these songs together. And I would listen to this music and I'd be like, what is that? And certain songs I would know, but the songs that they were playing on the radio were like an, another verse or an extended version mm-hmm. or some whole new drum pattern of the song that I didn't know existed. So I would go to the record store and buy the records that I heard on the radio and just start collecting records. So those guys were kind of the first people who got me into 
the idea of having extended versions of songs or things that I didn't know existed. And my collection turned into me being uh, bringing those records back to Arizona and people at, in Arizona going like, you have such great records, why don't you play them at our party? Right. So it was sort of like, cool, I'll bring my cool record collection and make your party cool. Yeah. And, uh, and that... You know, it turned into also then it's like, hey, can you make me a mixtape with all those cool records? It's like, sure. So I was just really sharing this music with other people who, because they were regional New York hip hop records, sure. nobody in Arizona knew what the hell they were listening to. So it was kind of like this, I was like the missionary, like handing out, you know, leaflets, like check out MC Shan, check out, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> so. Well, it's hard to imagine that there was a time when everything wasn't everywhere. Right, right. Right. And so if you lived in a place like Arizona, you know, you knew about the top 10 hip hop, you know, and that was it. That was, well, the, the, everyone knew like white lines and right. jam on it and stuff. But like here I'm coming with yeah, like, yeah. you know, two live crew records and just regional Miami bass records or regional um, Philly records. And people had no clue what they were hearing, but they loved it. They were totally into it. And so I became the the go-to guy in my hood. Um, and it was funny because my source was going back to New York and just grabbing records. I sure. remember the first time I got a credit card, I went to the record store and bought $500 worth of records. It was like, yeah. cool, and brought them all back. And then then I had to pay for them all, which right. was like, that was my first experience with credit. Um, but I bought all records, which is kind of funny because, you know, flash forward to now, it's kind of still the same deal. Yeah, I'm just now buying less records for more expensive and they're right, like right, in Japan. Right. You know sure. I mean? so. That's great. So, um, so I, I, you know, I know you had uh, your thing going in, in Arizona with Bomb Shelter DJs and, and um, you know, as I mentioned, the Tom Sawyer remix. Um, what was, that was for a soundtrack? That was the first um, remix I got paid for, nice. which, was, uh, which was for the movie Small Soldiers. Um, and they oh, yeah. ran it in the movie, too, which, you know, I did that whole remix on... Uh, an Ensonic EPS 16 plus, if you know about gear. Um, and I maxed out the memory on that thing and I took it, recorded it, took it and put it in a pro tool session, did the scratching and sent it to them. And I didn't think it was going to happen. Um, but they hit me back. They're like, we love it. I think I got a thousand dollars for it. Mm -hmm. And that's real. Money. That was incredible. Are you Pay kidding me? Like, credit cards. Yo, I got a thousand dollars for doing this thing. It probably took me, you know, a week to do it. Uh, and then went and saw the movie and saw the scene, Kirsten Dunst dancing in her room with like all these rock posters and listening to my remix. I was like, this is the shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've made it. You know what right? I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, that was that was a, a very sort of empowering moment. And once you sort of, I, I feel like as a DJ coming up, I think most DJs, at least I could speak for myself, but I would think most, you just want to, express your art you want an audience of people to hear what you do right and so you'll do it for nothing you'll do it just to do it and after a little bit of time when you actually get paid for doing something that you would have kind of done anyway like then it turns into like wow wait a second i can sustain this if i just keep building and that was kind of my turning point for me to actually get a check from warner brothers or dreamworks mm -hmm. sorry Track from DreamWorks for this thing, and it was just like the light bulb went off. I was like, I got to continue to do this. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's interesting. I was I was in a conversation this week with some music business folks, and 
you know, is about how, you know, there's, there's, there's ongoing discussion about where the money goes in music and, and, you know, how come the artists don't make more of it and all of that stuff. And uh, one of the people in the room said, you know, not, not to, not to counter that, but said, you know, the artists that I talk to, like, will often, they just, they want their music heard often to the detriment of making money. Yeah. Right. That they'll often make business choices uh, or choices that affect their business based on this idea that they want it out there for the world to enjoy. I, I see both sides of it. Yeah. From being a starving artist who wants the um, recognition, you know what I mean? Because if that equates to X amount of likes or X amount of attention, um, and you sacrifice making money for it. I understand that. However, I feel you can do both. Um, you just have to be savvy about doing both. Yeah. Um, and the other thing too is, you know, knowing your worth. You have to really know what you're worth, and knowing not to sell yourself short. Or if there's a time to bargain or sell yourself short, you know what you're getting in return. Right. Um, I think the other thing that most people should pay attention to, and I pay attention to a lot. And the and the longer I do this, the the more it really comes into play is the aggregate. You know what I mean? It's really about what, you know, not how much you're making at this particular gig or that particular gig or weighing one against the other, but how much, you know, are you able to do this for a living? Right. Are you able to right now and go get a, a meal and eat that meal and not feel like I can't afford the extra guacamole or whatever the hell, you know what I mean? Like, is that, is your life okay? Are you good? Right. Then, then that's covered. Now, anything else should be sort of like, how do I build upon that? But if you make it be about each gig as opposed to, uh, you know, an aggregate of, of of the amount you're making or the skills you're 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 doing and what you're getting back based off of those skills, um, and it and it benefits you, then you're winning. You know what I mean? And it, th then it just becomes about the margin of how big that is. But I think people tend to get so focused in on the one gig and the you sure. know, if you make it just be about that, then you're I think you're kind of you're not you're missing the bigger picture. You know, you'll get those bigger gigs. You'll get the you know, you'll get the phone call from Scion where it was like, hey, we got this big budget. Like, cool. That mm -hmm. covers rent for, you know, right. six months. Don't have to worry about that. Now I can go back to doing, you know, other things. It's yeah. like, they'll come. You just got to build it. Yeah. So um, after Small Soldiers, sort of the next time that I really uh, saw you on like a national scene, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, but was with Uneasy Listening. So, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, was that 2001? Yeah, it was like 2000, 2001. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this mix CD, if anyone's not familiar with a CD, it's this round <laughs> thing. You can, like, put drinks on it now. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was a mix CD that you did that I think for a lot of people um, was the first time they had heard mashups. Um, I, I think, you know, I think calling it, I think mashups is sort of a disservice to what that was. And I remember from the moment that opened with the Rhinestone Cowboy, um, just feeling like this is something different than what we're used to hearing. Yeah, it was, it was meant to be, um, sort of, a, a we called it, um, against the grain, yeah. uneasy listening volume one. The whole thing was, 
I love music, uh, and I've always been trying to sprinkle in other styles of music into what I when I play. So if I go into a room full of people who just want to hear rap music, I'm going to try my hardest to sprinkle in a couple other things that they don't know that they may dig or maybe into. Um, and also for myself, so it's not just one thing all night long. Right. And that um, would parlay itself into playing three or four hours and then all of a sudden playing a Van Halen thing and having people come up to you at the end of the night and be like, man, that was an amazing set you played. Three hours, awesome. That Van Halen thing you did was cool. You're like, yeah. three hours, that was the one thing that stuck out because it was so oddball. Sure, yeah. So that became sort of the, the basis of making a whole mix based around the oddball stuff or the stuff that I thought was really interesting and cool. And I met with DJP, who was a, the other guy I did it with, mm -hmm. in Springfield, Missouri, and I did a show and I was... Uh, he played, and I heard him doing sort of the same style of stuff where it was like, here's all this bizarre stuff that you wouldn't normally hear DJs play at the time. I was like, we got to get together, man. Uh, like, I haven't really heard anybody pushing the boundaries like that. And he came out to Arizona, and we worked on that thing for a week and put it out. And it was, it was also to combat um, all the mixtapes at the time started to become less about music and more about exclusives. So it was right. like, who had the hottest, latest... Yeah, most deaf verse or you know whatever it was and that's all the mixes everyone was trying to one up each other on having the most exclusive and I feel like in a weird way we're very much back to that and it's kind of never left but it's very much back to that now of, of with mixtapes well just in general with music it's mm. like things are so immediate that it's not so much about how amazing the song is it's about how many people hear it and how many likes you can get and how much of a splash you can get. And then in two or three weeks, people are onto the next thing right. um, by default. But at that time, those were the mixtapes. And we were like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to plug in a mixtape and hear the same things from all different, you know, 10 different mm -hmm. guys mm -hmm. chopping up the same 40 songs. So let's do this. And so we did that. And it was kind of an interesting time too because it was right around the time of Napster, right? Mm -hmm. It was right around the time of... Um, People really making the internet, their, just yeah, internet sharing, mainstream. file sharing. Also, um, one of the things that was super cool about that is it was around the time where people were starting to burn their own CDs and you know make their own playlists of things. And and I remember uh, for that particular mix, when I was designing the cover, I was like, I remember going into a girl's car one time. She had the booklet of CDs, and she had like you know fifty CDs, and I cracked it open. There's all these different colored CDs with like artwork or whatever, and it's very you know minimal writing on things. So I couldn't tell what she had, and I was like, "How next mix CD I do? I got to make it big and say something that's hit you in the face." And so I was like, "This is the best CD I own." Yeah, uh, that's what I put on it. And I was like, "So oh, that way, right. when people would flip through things, they'd be like, what is this?'" And they'd plug it in, right? So it was sort of this early marketing scheme, but. Then people were coming up to me going like, yo, that best CD I own is the coolest. <laughs> like, you know, so it was just a, it was almost like a, a test to see what worked that coupled with people sharing it. And, you know, we made a thousand of those things. They, um, they flew and then, you know, we pressed up another couple thousand. I think we ended up getting like four or 5,000 of those things. Um, and we couldn't change the artwork because I was right. only going to do a thousand. I thought like maybe we could get rid of these things, but yeah. it ended up, Blowing up and landed us in like Rolling Stone and Spin. I ended up getting a record deal off of that. Yeah. I ended up um, doing the Linkin Park tour based mm -hmm. off of that. Like it just opened everything because it was so different from what was going on. And it was a risk that I took and P took, but 
we thought people were going to hate on it. You know, to be honest, I, I, I was like, this is... Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? I was like, this is so against the norm that everybody within the hip-hop scene is probably going to look at this and shit on us. They're probably just going to hate on this because it's so not keeping right. a real B-boy. And it was like, but if you go beyond that, it's actually the realest B-boyest thing you could do. Because that's what... I, I, I listened to the early guys and studied all the, the early DJs who were playing breaks and playing, incorporating all styles of music and craft work and James right. Brown and rock and funk. That's what it was. That's, they were just playing records. And somehow we got over to just rap records. I was like, no, it can be still musical. And I feel like that's the struggle still is that people, when you go and play clubs and, and festivals and things, people want the hits and you got to give them a little bit of that, but then you got to sprinkle in the things that you are trying to sort of expand their mind with. And, and I do that sort of like you know, uh, two for them, one for me, three for them, yeah. one for me. Like I always try and keep that balance going because then I'm not bored and then it sort of allows me to stand out a little bit still. And I think that's the whole point, right? You want to stand out. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, you, you talked about the marketing and like, you know, the fact that that was 4,000 copies or whatever it ended up is amazing how far it traveled. And again, you know, yeah. that was the internet was fueling that. It was a, but, it was a perfect storm in a weird way, but it, it, everyone got it, man. And it, and yeah. it opened up this, you know, they were like mashups. And it's like, we didn't really even call it that. We just right. called it blending. It was, yeah. you know, take an acapella of this or a instrumental of that and just mix them together. And then they called it mashups. We were like, that's kind of, and it was funny because it ushered in this whole new thing of like, People calling themselves mashup DJs. I'm, uh -huh. like, I'm going to take rock records and mix them with hip hop records, and I'm a mashup DJ. And so you'd see on flyers like, you know, right. playing hip hop, playing mashups, playing. It's like, and mashup, the term just means mixing. Right. And so, like, I'm a mixing DJ. Uh -huh. It was a redundancy that I was just like, this is so dumb. But, you well, know, at the same you know, time, I had to kind of rock with it, you know. But we're kind of addicted to these labels, right? Of course. Um, At first, I was like super like about it, but then I was like, you know, whatever, call it what you want to call it, do what you do. I don't care. But it just the thing is, what happened is, it also ended up being a little kind of a mess because we were really finicky over what went with what because things had to be in key, they had to match yeah. tempos. There was all this meticulous about like we'd try a hundred things, and if only one kind of worked, we might put it on the shelf mm -hmm. until the one came along. But once it opened up the Pandora's box and you had people in the UK and everywhere, like it's, everyone was just file uploading and, and Mashup became such a search button that you get these guys who are like mixing two things that didn't sonically sound good, but like maybe the, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, you'd have like Lou Reed walk on the wild side and, and Adamant goody two shoes, walk on the goody two shoes side. You'd be like, sure. it's the worst. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like it sounds horrible. The Whoa. name, I get the juxtaposition in the name, but like you miss the whole concept and you're just pushing the square through the circle and it's like not working. So there was a, a part of like, oh my God, just opened up this door to like such horrible. But then there was also a lot of people who came through and realized like, we can push the boundaries and open up doors. So it sort of ushered yeah. in things for like too many DJs and Danger Mouse and all these other people who sure. kept the kept the the right momentum going. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it it definitely um, you know that genre or whatever got that style of mixing definitely got taken to kind of cartoonish levels. Extremely, um, and you know a lot of just wordplay like yeah. titles, as you yeah. said, or a lot of like ironic DJing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and there, there was an era for a while, if you guys remember, um, where it was like, let's make people dance at any cost, right? Which I, you know, I, 
get as a, but it was like we're, we're just gonna play the cheesiest fun song because we just know people are gonna dance even though we're like sort of holding our noses while we do it yeah that's... and i and and you know what what you do i think is very different and i think it goes back to what we talked about earlier that you're playing music that you love and the fact that it's different genres is not yeah, that's not what drives it. Well, it was it was the thing is I could stand behind any of those things I right. played, and I could tell you about those records or those artists, and you could tell that it meant something to me, and it was coming out through the mix in that manner. Um, I st- I think we're still in a situation now where, uh, you know, there are a handful of DJs who really care about selecting and and yeah. re- care about the details, but there's a a really huge chunk of DJs who just want the big drop, the big tune. The followers, the all the other things that come with it, which is okay to want those things, but in their quest to get those things, they've skipped a big chunk. And some people go back and learn it, some people don't. But I, it struggle. I struggle when I go to hear other DJs play. Um, you know, maybe one in in uh, you know three or four DJs don't have this, but most I see, mostly younger cats, uh, are just playing tunes. And they're not putting any of them into the mix, and yeah. you can't really hear them in the mix. You can, and as a DJ, when you have a DJ ear, you hear the the hot tune to the hot tune to the hot tune, and you're like, okay, you're just running through hits. And while you might be finessing them up a little bit, in my mind, I'm like, what 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 do you play in your car when you're driving away from the gig? Right, like, that's what I want to hear. Or what are you listening to in the airport when you're waiting for the to the next show? Like, sp- sprinkle some of that in. Because are you really listening to like Baby Shark? Right now, between because that's what you're pushing on me right now, like oh, you know, because it's getting a reaction. Sure, but you know what? What are the things that you're really into that you can sprinkle between the two? And that is when I go and get inspired because then I'm listening, like I don't know what that is, or I hear something and I get, I sort of get the the blood pumping again. But when you hear just somebody run through, uh, you know, forty hits, a hundred hits in a row, and you then you go to another party and you hear the same thing just in a different order it's just, it's a little sort of like come on man we could be doing so much more than this yeah. but i get it like i also understand the commerce side and but you know there's just the part of me that's like i want to hear what you're into you're in a position also to sell your who you are you know is it just an image is it just you so, up there so what's the sonically i want to know what you're you know. what's the incentive right like you can um the 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 musical part of being a DJ can be pretty easy now. Yeah, yeah, to right? physically like do it. Yeah. To fit, like there there's technology, there's access to records. You don't have to fly all over the world yeah. hunting down records. You know, all, all the shit that you went through to build your your skills and your toolkit, we can get that in a in a weekend. Yeah. Um, why should people work that as hard then? Because. I'm a living testament to if you work hard enough and you stand out, you'll have a long career yeah. and other people will appreciate it. I mean, you know, I, you know how many people come up to me at the end of a, a show and say, man, you know, I, I stumbled upon you and you changed the way I look at things. You changed the way I hear things yeah. or I met my wife at one of your shows or whatever it is. It's like, it's almost like having a grateful dead following of people who really care to come out and see me do what I do because it's so, I try to keep it as authentic as I possibly can, and you can get that other stuff anywhere. You know That's what I right. mean? So I feel like it's, it's, you know, it's incentive. It's, if, if you get your own sound, you know, if I want to see somebody, if I want to see Aphex Twin, 
Like that's a sound. That's Aphex Twin sound. You know what right. I mean? And it's yeah. specific. If I want to see Radiohead, that's their sound. And I, and these are people like I, I could go on and on about like how many other bands sound like the other bands that are hot for the moment and then move on to the next thing. And it's like you don't really know what their sound is, or maybe it takes them five or ten years to find their own their own sound. Yeah. I've, I just you know I think I'm just maybe I'm preaching to the choir with a lot of people who are listening, but I just struggle with trying to find inspiration. Music should be inspiring um, at least 75% of the time, you know what I mean? If you're doing it right, you know? Yeah. As opposed to the other way. Hey, shout out to LA Times for having us um, at the Festival of Books. It's a good time. You should get out there next year. Hopefully we'll be back again for a third time. It's uh, every April, uh, sometime in April in LA. Check the LA Times for that. If you're if you're digging this episode, go back. We uh, we recorded another live one last year. I was on stage with Ali Shahid Muhammad, the DJ and producer from a tribe called Quest. Another amazing DJ and a great interview. You can uh, you can check that one out as well. So on that note, you, you know you you got. Um, you know, you kind of blew up with with uneasy listening. You got a record deal. You know, people all over the world are discovering it um, from the outside, and that was at a time when DJs, the DJ was becoming, you know, was moving from the booth to the stage, yeah. right? And uh, you know, AM, and shortly after, you know, Steve Aoki, and you know, we start seeing the explosion of of the DJ. You kind of went the other direction and kept it underground. Um, you know, not making banging out EDM tracks and uh, you know, playing celebrity parties. I mean, I'm sure you played celebrity parties, but like you didn't you you didn't go that route of making that your career and your business. Was that on purpose? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I just I have to be authentic to what I care about. Like, I'll I'll push boundaries and I'll take chances always, but my biggest thing was I didn't want to go and become part of a niche thing or a uh, something that's very for the times or for that moment, and then all of a sudden not be able to back out of that. Like, I'll flirt with everything. But, like, I, I, I came out this way, and I've been able now to go through, you know, the blog house era, the yeah. dubstep era. You know, it's like I've been able to, to bounce through and, and still flirt with. Like, I love all this stuff, but, like, sure. to not make, you know, what's hot right now? Oh, uh, you know down tempo edm all right i'm gonna make a whole album of that like okay then what then in three years it's like oh right. wow that's the thing man just timeless classic style to me is matters more because i always want something that it's funny we were sitting down out front and, and you're playing a mix of uh that i did at the oh, get yeah. back right and it's funny as i was talking to uh to my friend over here um I was like, wow, this is good music. I was like, who, this is like, <laughs> and I didn't realize until like two or three songs, I was like, oh shit, this is me. <laughs> it's fucking hot tonight, y'all, but it's about to get hotter because we're about to bring you legendary DJ Z Trip. That's how we're doing it tonight. Get back. Woo! I ain't no joke. I 
used to let the mic smoke. Now I slam it when I'm gonna make sure it's broke. When I'm going, no one gets on. And that's, that's from, great. you know, whatever, like 10 years ago or something. And yeah. we talked about how, like, timeless music, it's like that, I could have done that last night because the content and the music I was flipping was, like, proper funk, good tunes. And it's like, good tunes are good tunes are good tunes, and they'll always stand the test of time. That's why you have... Fleetwood Mac and Pink Floyd and all these people who are just, you know, Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody will always be able to be played because it's such a classic as opposed to, you know, what was the big snap tune from, you know, four years ago, right? you know, that everyone knew at the time, but now, you know, what are those people doing with their lives? It's like, so was there, was there a moment when you had to make hard choices to say, I'm going to, I'm going to go with what I know instead of like, there's a big check for something whack in front of me? I think every day is a hard choice because that stuff is so tempting and the money is so yeah. there and it's like, you know, you know how many times I've done, you know, gone to photo shoots and they're like, here, put these clothes on and look this certain way or, <laughs> or, you know, uh, Hey, we want you to remix this thing, but do it in this kind of fashion. It's like, you have to have some sense of integrity of what you are taking on to know where the fine line is between, okay, I'm going to go get that bag of money because it's great money, but like, I'm also going to regret it in the morning. But you know what? I could use that money because that's going to fund me getting all these other cool records that right. I'm going to be able to play and do this other cool thing with it. So it's like almost like a Robin Hood. I'm going to rob from the rich and give to the poor musically. But um, you have to choose those battles because if you're just constantly over there, then you you know you might be famous, but then what sort of credibility are you going to have? You're going to have to walk back from that. You know what yeah. I mean? I, I, I mean, I think really that's a story that. people tell themselves, right? Like, I'm going to get that money. It's going to fund all this great stuff. And you kind of never get to the great stuff yeah. because you get you just get off track. You know, I struggle with, um, with – I have a lot of friends who are DJs who are amazing DJs, incredible DJs. And when we're around each other or we're freestyling or playing records or messing around, it's like I know what they're capable of doing. But they fell into the bottle service circuit. Right. And that's the only gigs they play now. And yep. while it's good money for them, it's kind of like, yo, I'm just going to take this job at this gas station for the summer. And then before I know it, I come back 15 years later, like, I'm the manager of this mobile station. That's right. And it's like, yeah, but you're so much better than that. Like, you just stuck with the day job. You didn't push a little bit. And I think, like, it's... It gets a little dicey because at the at, but you know who am I also at the end of the day like if you're a DJ and you're DJing at a, at a nightclub and you're making lots of money and you're doing your thing and you're not you're bagging groceries like and you're still DJing like who am I It's just not for me, man. I just, yeah, I it's just a it. question of what everybody's in it for, right? So like, there's this thing you know we we refer we think of DJs as curators, right? Because you're playing other people's music and whatever and. Um, but I, I don't think that describes you very well, right? Because uh, the selection is just one small part of what you do. You make music, you combine things into ways that they've never been done before. You get up on stage with Beck and take risks. Like, you know, curation is not really, doesn't do that justice. Well, it allows me the room to, to go anywhere now. If I just did bottle service clubs and then all of a sudden I was like, I'm going to do a reggae night. Like, right. that would be so hard for me to just, yeah. kick off but because i've been able to bob and weave out of all these different um areas and played in front of different crowds it, it's kind of the the known you know i know he's going to be amazing i just don't know what he's going to play like yeah. so that to me is something that i've really i'm really happy to have built up over the years because i've been able to parlay it into other things so 
if I do a Coachella or I do, um, you know, uh, uh, Bonnaroo or whatever big festival, and then I go do something with LL and we do a thing that's a completely different thing, or then I go and do the AFI Fest or the Tribeca Film Festival where I'm scoring to a silent movie live in front of a crowd. These are weird things that, you know what I mean? Like, sure. I try my hardest to keep myself evolving. I'm, I have a show coming up um, with Adam Deitch, the drummer of Lettuce, mm -hmm. and Buck Rogers doing the finger drumming and Supernatural Freestyling and me. And, you know, we might rehearse for a day before the show, but who knows what the hell is going to come of it. I just right. know I've got the right players, and that keeps me excited. Sitting in with Carl Denson, sitting in with Galactic, all these different bands and things, it keeps me uh, evolving and exciting. And, uh, you know, I try to, to push those boundaries, even to the point of doing things that are uncomfortable. Um, opening for Lincoln Park for the last, you know, the show that they did at Hollywood Bowl, yeah. um, where Chester had passed and we were doing a tribute show. That was a really hard show for me to do. You know what I mean? Sure. But like, A, I wanted to do it for Chester. B, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to get it off my chest. So sonically, I wanted to sort of cleanse myself and, and feel that you know therapy from that but it was really hard to do and doing shows like that it's it's important to push my boundaries it's important to not be comfortable every single time i get behind the turntables because you don't grow right what um what have you learned from lo cool j god that guy i, I saw you guys last year at jazz fest and it was an incredible incredible show thanks um I've learned that I thought my work ethic was amazing <laughs> and I was so wrong because yeah. that guy, I mean, I think I keep it pretty good, but he is yeah. just every second of every day is constantly pushing and growing and evolving. And, um, it's just been amazing to be around him. He's such a, a, a an amazing source of energy and, um, constantly inspired by that guy. Yeah. It's it's like it's to watch him work, um, and and the other thing is to collaborate with him to 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 be able to like, you know, how we first started working. It was very much like I came in at the situation with like, here's my skill set, here's your skill set, and we're both successful in our own right. He didn't have to work with me. I didn't have to work with him. We wanted to work together. And when you have a difference between needing and and wanting, it's a completely different thing. Because if we don't need to make this stuff, but we want to make this art, the art is going to be so much better. And his work ethic, my work ethic, I mean, it's real proper MC and DJ on stage. Like, we're really doing it. There's no overdubs. It's a lot of walking on the high wire. And the fact that he's up for that and is still in incredibly great shape and still delivers, Amazing. um, pushes me to, to like, I want to do even more. And so we're constantly, you know, we don't take anything for granted where we always rehearse and work on new bits and it's constantly evolving. It's amazing. But his, uh, that's what I've learned is how to just be better and continue and, and evolve. Yeah. I mean, th I, I thought that's what stood out on the stage was this chemistry that it wasn't about the DJ playing a couple of things in between raps or whatever. Yeah, there's right? no way I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't yeah, be of there. Of course. Of course. Okay. Uh, before we uh, wrap up, because somebody else is going to take this stage. Yeah. Um, I have a, a quick lightning round. Yeah, fire away. Uh, so, what's your favorite city to travel to? Uh, I have a few. Uh, Bay Area, Colorado. I love Hawaii. Japan's amazing. Canada is awesome. 
uh, Austin, Texas. You're all over the place. Yeah, those are all great places. Who's your favorite DJ? Depends on what mood I'm in. Um, but uh, that's, uh, yeah, I have to skip that one. It's this, this too hard, man. Nobody likes that question. Yeah, I can't do it. I can't do it. Well, your name's come up uh, with quite a few of our guests. I appreciate um, that. Uh, including my own. Um, what's the last great book you read? Uh, Finding Your Voice. It was uh, Louder Than Words by Todd Henry, uh, who's an amazing um, uh, author. He has a book called The Accidental Creative. And oh, yeah. That's, uh, if, you've, if you're a creative person and you're struggling with trying to find uh, creative ideas in a pressure cooker situation where you have to be on demand with ideas, that book is a really amazing book. What movie have you seen the most in your life? The Warriors. Uh, it's a great movie. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're going to watch a movie over and over, that's a good one. Yeah. What? I'm proud and ashamed. As, as, I wa- as I look at it now, it's like, ooh, it's a little cringeworthy, but like holds a deep place in my heart. I know all the words. No, it's great. Uh, if I worked for you, what's something I would hear you say over and over? <laughs> uh, where the fuck is that record? Where's that <laughs> record? Where is that record? I know it's somewhere. I, oh, man, help me find this record. That's what you'd find because it's somewhere like in my collection. Yeah. That's the problem. When it's on vinyl and you don't have it digitized and you know, you're, I need that acapella and it's on this thing, but it's not there. Oh, it's not I'm where sure. I left it. So like there's three or four hours at a time that'll go <laughs> down the rabbit hole until it's finally find it. But that's, yeah, we'd be on the hunt. Amazing. It happens. Z-Trip, thank you for doing this, man. Yeah, man. Stoked. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yo, that was Z-Trip live at the LA Times Festival of Books on Rebel Radio. I hope you liked it. I know I did. Make sure you leave us a comment. Uh, Let us know what you think of these live episodes. We're going to try to do more, and I would love to have you there in person and and all that. Uh, You can leave us comments uh, or send us a note, whatever, on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever you like. uh, We're at Rebel Radio Net, and most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.